I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the Work Opportunity Tax Credit. The Work Opportunity Tax Credit, or WOTSI, provides a tax benefit to businesses that hire individuals who have historically faced barriers to employment. The credit is one of the few federal business initiatives targeted at the social component of ESG and recently had bipartisan support for expansion during COVID. Some evidence suggests short-term benefits to employees hired under the program, but evidence of positive long-term effects is limited. Administration of the credit is also inefficient. Moreover, the credit benefits high turnover, labor-intensive, and often low-paying jobs. In today's episode, we outline the history of the WOTSI, discuss the limited evidence on its effectiveness, and highlight potential room for improvement in the policy. Hello, Obi. Hello, Lisa. Today we have another episode at the intersection of taxes and inequality, which is something that our listeners have asked for more of. And if there's one thing we do well, it's listen to feedback from our five listeners. Absolutely. We give those five people what they want. Now, a few episodes ago, we discussed the earned income tax credit, which is an individual tax credit intended to directly benefit lower income workers. In this episode, we're going to discuss the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, or WOTSI, which is a business tax credit for hiring workers who have historically faced challenges in the labor market. And we can go no further in a podcast about hiring credits without referencing the Prison Mike episode of The Office, because the worst thing about prison is the Dementors. So good. So good. I had totally forgotten about Prison Mike, who uh, I think we can all agree was a truly offensive Michael Scott caricature. You know why they call me Prison Mike? From the episode The Convict, where Michael learns that Dunder Mifflin has hired an ex-con. It's such a classic. Anywho, both the Earned Income Tax Credit and the Work Opportunity Tax Credit can be traced back to the War on Poverty in the 1960s and government attempts to help disadvantaged individuals generate wage income. The high-level goal of both credits is to subsidize employment. The difference is that earned income tax credit is paid directly to workers, while the work opportunity tax credit is paid to employers. Our goals for today are to first, summarize the history and the mechanics of the WOTC. Second, talk about the teeny tiny bit of evidence we have on its effectiveness. And third, to discuss some possible areas of improvement. Are you ready? I was born ready. I like it. All right, so we're going to start today with the idea that the third time is the charm. Of course. And that's because the WOTSI is actually the third iteration of a federal program designed to incentivize businesses to hire workers from targeted groups. That's right. So the first policy was the new jobs tax credit, which, like the one hit wonder band, the Buggles, was around for only a short time in the late 1970s. What? The Buggles. What is their one hit wonder? Video killed the radio star. Oh, snap. I did not know this. Yep. Continue. It was not renewed because it was perceived as a failure, but that was largely due to a lack of awareness by taxpayers and the short time period it was in place. Next up was the targeted jobs tax credit, which was passed under President Carter as part of the Revenue Act of 1978. Are you ready for some tax trivia? I am ready. You may already know this, but the Revenue Act of 1978 also gave us flexible spending accounts. I love those. And Section 401k. Love those even more. 
The maximum credit was $2,400, and that was for each employee that was certified as belonging to one of the nine targeted groups, including youths from poor families. I think it's youths. Vietnam-era veterans and ex-felons who were poor. On the surface, these targeted groups make sense because the point of these hiring subsidies is to encourage employment among individuals from disadvantaged groups. So focusing on members of the workforce who are economically disadvantaged or face significant hurdles in the job application process seems like a really good place to start. Totally agree. To get a credit for these employees, the employees had to work at least 90 days or 120 hours, and that would make their wages eligible for the credit. If you hired one of these summer Ute employees, they had to work only 14 days or 20 hours. Okay, so not to steal a page from your book, uh, Bleak B. Ooh, I like this. Go ahead. But these short time frames of 90 days or 120 hours, they don't really seem like a huge incentive to retain your workers. No, they don't. And in fact, these short minimum employment periods were one of the things that ultimately doomed the targeted jobs tax credit. One of the things. Yes. An audit report from the U.S. Department of Labor Office of Inspector General concluded the credit suffered from three key shortcomings. Number one, the credit did not incentivize hiring that otherwise would not have taken place. This report estimated that 92% of workers for whom employers could have claimed a credit would have been hired anyway. So it would basically be like somebody giving us a tax credit to do this podcast. We're going to do it anyway. So just keep your money, federal government. I would take that money. Exactly. Number two, the process to certify workers as eligible typically came after the hiring decision was made. And that's not really a good look for a credit that's supposed to change hiring behavior and help applicants get a leg up in the job application process. No, ma'am. And third, as you've already alluded to, credit eligible workers often left their jobs before receiving much work experience. Mm. And that is no bueno because at least some of the impetus for employment and hiring subsidies is to allow individuals to reap not just the economic, but also the non-economic benefits of work, such as discipline from following workplace schedules, getting along with coworkers, and learning to take direction. And to that, I have to say, I don't think I'm getting all of the non-economic benefits (laughs) out of my job. That's just because you you choose not to take direction. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. It's a choice. In, in theory, I could be getting these benefits. Yes. If you just applied yourself, B. The report estimated that each dollar in target jobs tax credits generated only about 37 cents in economic benefits and ended with the phrase, quote, we are disappointed. Which I love. And we're not even making it up. If you look at this report, that that's the concluding sentence. And that's, it's awesome that like, that's the best the government can do, right? Just say, I'm very disappointed in you. Try harder, do better. Right. And from the ashes of the targeted jobs tax credit came the work opportunity tax credit, the focus of our episode today. The WOTC was supposed to fix those three major flaws of its predecessor by one, reformulating the targeted groups, two, requiring that worker eligibility for the credit was established before the date of hire, and three, lengthening those minimum employment periods. In 2020, there were 10 groups of eligible workers from which companies could hire to claim the credit. And in all honesty, they lined up fairly closely with the groups from the targeted jobs tax credit. So with that first goal, reformulating targeted groups, it's just not clear how much reformulating there actually was. No, I'm sure there's a difference, but I just couldn't see it staring at the two different lists of groups. And as for establishing eligibility before hiring, 
Well, according to the IRS website, employers and employees can complete required forms on the day of hire and have 28 days after that date to submit the forms. It might take several months before the worker is actually certified as eligible. Uh, so far, I'm not super overwhelmed with these quote unquote improvements. You know, I'm, I'm squinting really hard at this. There might be improvements there if you look hard enough. Okay, I don't, maybe. Wanna, I don't wanna squint too hard because I'm gonna get wrinkles, but continue. The third improvement is more solid. In general, an employee must work at least 120 hours for any of their wages to qualify and 400 hours for their employer to get the maximum credit. Okay, so that is an improvement. Yeah. As it stands now, an employer can claim a credit for 40% of qualified wages for eligible employees who worked at least 400 hours during their first year of employment. Employers can claim a reduced credit of 25% for wages paid to employees who work between 120 and 400 hours. And for most eligible employees, the maximum amount of creditable wages is $6,000. Would you like an example? You read my mind. All right, so let's say Dollar General hires a Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program or a SNAP recipient, it's basically food stamps, and they're gonna have that worker work part-time. They pay her $10,000 to work 1,000 hours for the year. Now, I'm using Dollar General because they do claim the Watsi. Cool. I'm using SNAP recipients because they make up almost 70% of all Watsi certified workers. That seems to make sense. And I'm using the pronoun she because the majority of SNAP recipients are, in fact, women. And as we know, pronouns matter. Indeed, they do. Now, in this example, Dollar General can claim a credit of $2,400, which is the maximum credit rate of 40% times the maximum amount of creditable wages of $6,000. Okay, so that's a good baseline example. Let's let's have some fun with this, though. What if Dollar General is more generous and decides to pay her $15,000? What's the total credit? $2,400. Okay, no change. All right. What if they offer her health insurance on top of those wages? What's the maximum credit? $2,400. I'm sensing a theme here. Okay, let's assume she does a really good job. She stays on. She makes $10,000 again next year. What credit does Dollar General get for that second year? Zero dollars. That is not the answer I was looking for. I, I tricked you. Okay, right. So in most cases, the employer only gets the credit for the employee's first year of employment. So is there anything a company can do to increase the credit per eligible employee? Also, wasn't the max credit $2,400 back in 1977? Okay, slow down there. It's a lot. You're, you're asking a lot. I am. All right. So first, yes, you were paying attention and the max credit was $2,400 more than 40 years ago. So maybe fair to say we're not keeping up with inflation. And we know inflation is an issue right now. I've heard. It's a rumor. Second, a business can increase its credit by hiring qualified veterans. Okay. Those who are entitled to compensation for a service-connected disability and who have been unemployed for at least six months. The max credit is $9,600 for the first year for those individuals. Max credit for long-term family assistance recipients is $8,000 over two years. So to get more than that $2,400 credit, you got to hire somebody from one of those two eligible groups. Okay, interesting. But since these types of employees don't account for the majority of credits, clearly there must be some trade-offs employers face if they're trying to maximize their work opportunity tax credit. Mm -hmm. Also, given the relatively short time frame for qualifying for the credit, you know, it's the first or at most the second year of employment, I also can't help but think to our comment earlier about not always creating the best incentives for long-term employment. Exactly.
we've talked about the history and the mechanics of the Watsi. Now on to our second item on the to-do list for today, figuring out whether or not the credit quote works. And that is asking a lot because to talk about the efficacy of the credit, we need to know what we're trying to measure. What do we want the credit to do? So let's go to the IRS website. No, the Watsi. No, <laughs> it's my favorite place Ooh. on the interwebs. Okay, fine. Well, the Watsi quote incentivizes workplace diversity and facilitates access to good jobs for American workers. End quote. So let's start there. That seems like as good a place as any to start. So. Does the credit incentivize workplace diversity? Well, in theory, it could. As we've noted, the vast majority of Watsi certified workers are SNAP recipients. And according to data from the USDA, 67% of SNAP recipients are non-white, 92% are from households with income at or below the federal poverty line, and 63% are women. So if we're going with the assumption that most of the workplace is white dudes with higher socioeconomic status, then yes, it could be the case that the Watsi incentivizes workplace diversity. And in most cases, I would say I think that's probably a fair assumption, but I'm wondering if in this case, that's not a particularly fair assumption. Go on. Workers from targeted groups are not getting hired for those management level jobs where a whole bunch of old white dudes with higher socioeconomic status dominate. Okay. Whether the credit actually incentivizes workplace diversity depends on the demographics of workers already in that workforce into which these workers are getting hired. Okay, that's a totally fair point. So let's explore that idea a little bit further. Data from the U.S. Department of Labor shows that 43% of all Watsi certifications in 2021 were for jobs in office and administrative support. So it really could be the Dunder Mifflin Scranton office. I, there's only one way to know, and that's by getting Greg Daniels on the phone and asking him. Why didn't we have him as a guest on this show? Totally, because you know that we are only two degrees of separation away from Greg Daniels. How is that? The real Andy Bernard is a professor at Dartmouth. Oh, that's right. Who yes, we both met on the job market. That's right. All right, we're hitting stop, people. We messed this up, and uh, we we totally should have had Greg Daniels on uh, on this episode. Whoops. All right. So yes, lots of jobs in office and admin support. And according to Data USA, seventy five percent of that workforce is female. Mm. So we're probably not helping diversity along gender lines. But only about forty percent of that workforce is non-white. So we could be increasing diversity there along racial lines, maybe. Okay. The second largest group of certifications is from restaurants. Food preparation and serving is the industry. Service occupations are about 55% female and 50% non-white. So there's not much evidence that hiring more women and people of color into these jobs would be increasing diversity. No, and if we cut the data yet another way, we see that the majority of women, black and Latino workers are already in jobs other than management positions, like you guessed. They're already in the jobs that the Watsi tends to attract workers to. So it's not obvious that the Watsi is doing much to enhance workplace diversity, at least not in the way many people might think would be the most beneficial. It's also not obvious that the credit does much to address the criticism of its predecessor that businesses claiming the credit would have hired workers from those targeted groups anyway. So it doesn't sound like we're going to be awarding an A plus for increasing workplace diversity. No, well, I mean, I don't ever give A pluses, so I don't know why I would give one here, but continue. I was hoping we were going to have better things to say about this second point of facilitating access to good jobs for American workers, but 
But we're talking about the U.S. government trying to fix social inequity with tax policy. So if you're looking for hope, you've come to the wrong place. Right. Unfortunately, Department of Labor statistics on jobs that WOTC workers are certified for aren't entirely helpful here because they aggregate all jobs that pay over $10 an hour. And in 2021, almost 75% of WOTC certifications were for jobs in that highest pay bucket. But of course, many of them could have been right at or just above that $10 per hour rate. And if we use those data from Data USA again, we see that service jobs have an average yearly wage of about $28,000. And office and administrative support jobs have an average yearly wage of about $38,000, both of which are below the national average of $56,000. Okay, but a good job can be about more than just pay, right? Uh, I'm intrigued by this notion. Go on. (laughs) This is unfamiliar to you. Totally unfamiliar to me, but continue. All right, humor me. Maybe companies that claim the WOTC are better companies and offer more non-financial perks and are generally just better places to work. After all, a GAO report from 2001 suggests that about 40% of surveyed companies that claim the WOTC did so because they wanted to be a good corporate citizen. And I'm never going to doubt what a corporation says when talking to the government about its motives. Right. All right. So let's go with that. In work that I have with Michelle Hutchins, Stefan Richter, and Brian Williams, we analyze Glassdoor employee reviews of companies that disclose in their financial statements that they claim the WOTC. We find evidence that employees at these companies report more cons related to diversity and rate their employers lower on culture and values. Now, none of this is causal, and we can only identify companies that voluntarily disclose the credit, so there are absolutely limitations to these analyses. But so far, we're not painting a super rosy picture of the jobs available to WOTC eligible workers, either in terms of pay or these softer, non-economic, fuzzy factors. No. Yeah. I guess there's not going to be an A plus for this facilitating good jobs either. All right. Time for the good, the bad and the ugly. And I'll start. Okay. And I'll say it's good that Congress is trying to tackle the problem of low employment among disadvantaged groups in multiple ways. I genuinely like the idea of incentivizing businesses to be part of the solution and not leaving all of the responsibility to the workers in terms of finding good jobs. I know how difficult that was for you, and I just want you to know I'm very proud. Thank you. I also appreciate the effort, but there are many bad things here to be grumpy about. Thank goodness. (laughs) Let's first talk about how hard we had to work to get a sense of the program's efficacy. To say the least, the administration of the WOTC is complicated. Yes. State workforce agencies are responsible for certifying that an individual is part of a targeted group, but the IRS administers the credit. That bifurcated system means that no single collection of data exists, and therefore, the research on the efficacy of the program is limited. The existing research suggests some limited short-term gains in rates of employment and wages among WOTC certified workers, but little improvement in their long-term employment outlook. And even if there are short-term gains, they're accruing to only a handful of eligible workers. Mm -hmm. Participation in the WOTC is low, with somewhere between an estimated 10 and 33% of workers from eligible groups being certified. So on to our final topic for today, now that we've outlined some of the bad, how can we fix it? I love this. Okay. A 1991 report 
from the GAO on the targeted jobs tax credit offered some concrete suggestions that were not integrated into the WOTSI, including requiring employer outreach to eligible populations and requiring additional training of eligible workers to increase retention. So those seem like really good ways to increase participation and enhance the potential long-term benefits to workers. And this is super disappointing because this is a GAO report where they didn't just come in and like crap on the targeted jobs tax credit. They crapped on it, but then also offered opportunity for improvement that was subsequently ignored. Like that's annoying. Yeah, we, we have a lot of conversations at home about it's easy to pick things apart. What's difficult is offering a constructive solution. And what they've done here is offer some constructive feedback that people subsequently totally ignored. Anyway. The credit could also do more to target new entrants into the workforce or provide additional benefits for hiring individuals who have faced longer-term unemployment. A design like this could help avoid the, quote, cream-skimming effect, whereby only those workers with high employment probabilities within the targeted groups get jobs. There's also the issue of stigma. So during our business retreat to Lake Austin last year, we encountered a retired judge from Indianapolis who had worked extensively with programs that help ex-felons gain employment. He lamented the negative backlash some companies and communities face for participating in what cynics characterize as a hug-a-thug program, like job programs for ex-felons. Hugh Michael's reaction in the office to finding out that his new coworker, Martin, was an ex-felon. You're racist. Why? Because you think he's black. Speaking of which, many states have so-called ban-the-box laws that prevent companies from asking questions about criminal history on job applications. So I'm struggling to understand how a company can knowingly hire an ex-felon in these states. Mm -hmm. These are two potential reasons why ex-felons make up less than 5% of all WOTC certifications. Not only is participation low among eligible workers, it's also low among businesses. In 2018, which is the most recent year of data, only about 4,000 corporations claim the WOTC. That's 4,000 out of over 6 million. That's a really small percentage. In comparison, over 25,000 corporations claim the R&D credit. So you've done the research here, B. What gives? Well, for starters, the credit, like all business tax credits, is non-refundable, which means companies that are reporting losses won't get any immediate cash benefit from hiring these workers. But I think the bigger issue is the uncertainty. Many firms engage outside consultants to administer the credit, and that means upfront fees. But the minimum length of employment requirements make it difficult for a company to forecast the benefit that it might get. And let me tell you from personal experience, it's hard to sell a tax planning strategy to a CFO when you can't tell her how much money it's going to make with any degree of certainty. And on top of that, as you mentioned, the certifications are processed by state workforce agencies, which we might imagine are not the most efficient. Mm. And in some cases, there is a two-year processing lag. Two years? Two years. You're telling me a company could hire a worker today in 2022, pay upfront costs to consultants and other parties to implement the necessary steps into their hiring processes and not get the benefit until 2024? And by the way, that... Benefit is only $6,000 per worker max. That's what I've been told. So one consultant I spoke with who is entirely in the business of helping companies process these WOTC certifications called the state level dysfunction in processing, quote, mind boggling. They concluded that it's only the largest companies who have the liquidity and other resources to change their hiring practices now and wait two years to reap the financial benefits. And that sounds as ugly as prison Mike right there. We've got a potentially good idea that languishes because of shortcomings in design, in awareness, in administration, 
just like Michael Scott somehow always made a fool of any good idea. I think that analogy is actually pretty spot on. Congress has been trying for over 40 years to use tax policy to address what I think we can agree is an important social issue. We appreciate the effort. We appreciate the effort, but the devil is in the details. And as we've seen time and again, without smart design and efficient administration, sometimes you wind up with failed initiatives like the Michael Scott paper company. Or Scott's tots. It's, it's too painful. I can't. I can't no, no. Too, D- diversity day? Oh, I'll take diversity day over Scott's tots. It's, it's his relationship with Jan. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.